morning. Uh, Isaiah 55, I think, after this week, we have three more weeks left in Isaiah. I think that's accurate. But um, I'm just going to read to you Isaiah 55, and then we'll, we'll jump in. So Isaiah 55 says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness for the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and the nation that you did not know shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts and your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but the water, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that uh, be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall shall accomplish that purpose that for which I purpose. And shall succeed in the thing which I, uh, for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. For the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn uh, shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So uh, last week, the other day, uh, spoke from Isaiah chapter chapter 53. And Isaiah chapter 53 is this messianic prophecy, right? And it's actually deeper than that because if you read uh, if you read Isaiah, Isaiah start like starting at chapter one, it, it starts off with um, with uh, what prophets a lot of times do, bringing the word of the word of judgment, the word of of, of warning to the people. And Isaiah starts at, at that from from chapter 1, and he kind of just keeps going through it, going through it, going through it. But then it, occasionally uh, there'll be, there'll be uh, words of judgment and then a word of hope, a quick word of hope. And it kind of progresses like that. But as we have gone further and further into Isaiah, <coughs> we've arrived at the passages that are going to speak to the, to the hope of the people uh, that Isaiah is prophesying to uh, directly, but deeper than that, to the hope of the world. Because last week, Dave spoke from Isaiah chapter uh, 53, and Isaiah chapter 53 is a uh, Christocentric, messianic prophecy of the coming of the king. It has all these prophecies about who the Messiah was and what the Messiah would do. He talked about last week how that happened 700 years before Jesus even walks the earth. Uh, his ministry is encapsulated. He's told that there, there's coming a Messiah, that the Messiah is coming to die. We're told in Isaiah chapter uh, 55 that he's going to forgive sins. He's going to make atonement for the sin. 53, that he's going to make atonement for sins. We're told in 53, but that's not the end of it. He's going to rise. So all of that happens in, in 53. Chapter 54, which we don't have time to cover, is going to be about, about the, the nature of, of that covenant. So the Messiah comes making the covenant possible. Isaiah chapter 54 is a description of that covenant, a description of the blessings of that covenant. The one who has come to save you has come to take away sins. He's taken your sins. And here's the blessings of knowing this Messiah. In chapter, chapter 55, and this is when we get into the, the invitation to what happened in chapter 53 and 54, right? There is coming a Messiah. The Messiah is going to have these blessings in chapter 55 then says, come, come, right? And so I think one of the things that we don't always, uh, we always, do, we don't always get in our, our humanity is the inviting nature of our God or the idea that the God of the universe is calling us to him, right? We may get that... Um, from a theological perspective, right, from, from like uh, 
well, I know that the Bible says that God loves me and everybody's said that, but a lot of times we don't understand that in the depth of our soul exactly who this God is and, and what he's saying. And so our God is an inviting God. And the idea that is going to be, going to be laid out here in chapter 55 is that God, the same God who, who in, in the early chapters was, was laying out uh, the, the terms of, of judgment essentially against them, has now been revealed to be the one who has taken the punishment, taking the judgment upon himself in chapter 53. Chapter 54, it's laid out, here's the blessing to what the Messiah has come. And in chapter 55, the idea is, yes, you, even you, come. So it begins like this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Right? Come. And so th this idea here is, is that God wants you to come and receive the blessings and the benefits of his salvation, of the fact that he took your punishment, and of his blessings, of the fact that, the, that, that our salvation in Jesus is not entirely from the negative. In other words, it's not just that it saves us from something, but it saves us to something as well. We're saved to the blessings of, of, of his covenant. In, in 55, he says, no, come and, come and get it. Because sometimes I think, even in our, our um, uh, even if we're, uh, I'll use this term, uh, even if we're religious, or even if we grew up in church, even if we, we have a relationship with Jesus, I still think it is a common problem that we do not often come to, to that God. The, the problem with most of us, are, uh, and the problem with humanity is, while uh, on the exterior we spend a lot of time denying our own sinfulness, right? We deny that we do wrong. We deny that we, we don't do, do right. In our heart of hearts, we know that we do. That, that's a reality. I think that... Um, I find nothing more infuriating than someone rightly pointing out something that I know that I'm doing wrong, especially when I already feel bad about that thing, right? So if you're, you're married or if you have a friend who, who's honest with you or somebody else or maybe even an enemy who says to you, you do that thing and you already felt bad about it, it is like devastating. You're like, ugh, right? Like um, you're trying to work on on um, being less sarcastic or remembering to bring out the trash. And you're really trying to work at, at it. And someone like points that out, that can be so infuriating. You get so angry. And what I find typically is when I get in infuriated, I, I respond with defensiveness, right? So especially if it's you need to work on this, especially if I know that I need to work on that, I will deny that, right? The, the human, uh, the ability or my ability, and I think our ability, right, to, to deny reality, especially when we know it's true, is strong. Defensiveness, because people are not typically defensive unless they know that they have a reason to be defensive, right? And so what I'm saying is there's this, there's this pull in us, because I think we all know because we lay our head on the, on the pillow at night, and when you lay your head on, on the pillow and you go into your own thoughts and you start to think your own thoughts and you deal with you, what keeps us up at night, right, that thing that keeps us from sleeping soundly is the reality of who we are, right? And yet our pride keeps us from wanting to hear anybody else point out the truth that we already realize about ourselves. And, and the point I'm trying to make here is this, is that... There is a thing about humanity that, uh, that makes it, interestingly, uh, both very, very, very um, frustrated with its own brokenness and yet very, very defensive of it at the same time. So, what happens then is if you think you're defensive with another human, we project our human behavior onto the God of the universe so that we think... If God is looking at me and he knows everything about me, he knows every thought I've ever thought, he knows every thought I ever will think, he knows what I've done, and nobody else does, right? And if you're having struggles dealing with you, why would this God of the universe want you anywhere near him? And so I think one of the most creative lies of, of, uh, uh, of Satan, one of the most creative 
effects of sin, how sin becomes a loop of its own punishment, is that it convinces us that we should not come to God, right? It convinces us that, no, you're too simple. No, you're too dirty. No, you're too, your, your evil is too ugly. No, you cannot go to God and approach him like that. No, you cannot go to God and think like that. How are you going to go pray to God? You know what you did last night. You know what you said last night. You talk to your children. You know how you talk to your mother. You know how to, you talk to your sp- spouse. You know that you didn't do your best job at work this week. You know that you gossiped about, about, your, about your boss. You know that you looked at that thing on the internet that you should not have looked at. You know you said those words that you should not have said. You know that you in some way stole from somebody this week. All of these things come flooding back and the idea for us then becomes, well then how then could I possibly approach God? He could not possibly want me to come. And it is a very, very powerful lie that Satan tells. It is a very, very powerful lie that your sin tells because what it does is it keeps you from getting the very thing that you need. Listen, I have good news for you. God is every bit, every bit aware of how bad you are. Right? And if you think you're bad, I want you to understand this. God knows. See, if you think you're bad, God, with omniscience and his all-knowingness, God knows how bad you are. I want you also to understand this. If you think you're bad, God in his goodness understands you to be much, 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 much worse than you in your humanity can even comprehend. He does not know it like you know it. He doesn't emote it like you emote it. He knows it unequivocally because he is omniscient. I want you to understand this, that God not only knows every sin that you have ever committed, God knows with certainty, every sin you ever will commit. When you make a promise to God, God hears you make that promise, and He knows precisely when you will break that promise. He knows when you in sincerity say, God, I will do this and I will never stray again. God knows the exact moment of your strain. He knows that you're going to wander, right? When you make promises to God, God already knows the exact moment of your breaking of that, that promise, right? And so, while we often think ourselves in our humanity awful, God knows in his omniscience that we are right to a degree that we cannot even yet comprehend. Which seems like awful news, except for this. God came to save sinners. God prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53 that he was going to send the one who, by whose stripes, but under whose punishment, we would be healed 700 years before Jesus came to earth. He said he was sending him to rescue sinners. That was 700 years before Jesus came to earth. It was 2,700 some before you came to earth. And yet, Isaiah chapter 53 stands as a record that he said it, the Gospels and the whole of the New Testament stands as a historical record that it happened. Colossians says that he went to the cross and canceled the written record against us. The testimony of Scripture is that God, as prophesied in in Isaiah chapter 53, did indeed send his Son. That Son did indeed come to earth 2,000 years before you were. He did indeed go to punishment before you were existed, before your parents existed, before your family line existed. He went to punishment. He went to the cross. He went to death before you were. And the testimony of Scripture then is that he did this not because he was unaware of how broken you were, Not because he was somehow fooled into thinking you would be okay, but that God, in his goodness, as the prophecy of 53, 54, and 55 state, was going to send his son. 2,000 years ago, he did send his son. History happened. He did take our iniquities on him, not because he was unaware of your iniquities, but because he was fully, completely, and totally aware of every iniquity that you would ever take part in, that every sin you would ever commit, every wrong thing you would ever do. Here's the reality, is that Isaiah chapter 53 
is prophesying that Jesus would come and die for sins that you have not yet committed. When Jesus went to the cross, he did not go to the cross unaware of the horrible things I'm going to do tomorrow. But rather he did them fully aware of the horrible things that I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day. And he already knows now every broken promise I will make. This is Jesus. We're 2,000 years after that, but 2,700 years of history are making the same testimony which is said here in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. This is what Scripture is saying. And, and I, I think one of the things we need to grasp on two, with two hands is, yeah, the depth of our fall. But also, that His grace and His goodness is greater than our fall. So that when you hear your mind say to you, I could not possibly go to God. I'm too messed up. I messed up again. He's not going to want to talk to me. Right? We anthropomorphize God. Right? We say, God's not going to want to talk to me. He, 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 he knows what I've done. I did this again. I promised yesterday I wouldn't do this, and I did it today. So how can I possibly talk to him? How you can possibly do that is this. God sent Jesus because he knew that you are a promise breaker. God sent Jesus because he knew that, that, that you were sinful. God sent Jesus because he knew that you were prone to wander. God sent Jesus because he knew that you were without hope. God sent Jesus because he knew that there was not a single thing that you could do to rescue yourself. The testimony of Scripture makes no sense if the testimony is God came to save pretty good people. Because I haven't met any pretty good people yet. At the end of the day, we're just all messed up sinners. Right? And so, what we need to do is start to take God at His word and take God with the understanding when He says, come. He means, come! Right? Come. I have a dog. My dog is dumb. Right? He's dumb on so many different levels. He's lovable. He's just stupid. Right? So we love him, but we somehow got the dog that can't ride in a car because he throws up. We got the dog who can't, you can't take to the lake and he won't go in the water because he's afraid of it. Right? So my dog, my dog learned this command. Petey, come. Right? Peter Barker, the amazing spider dog, by the way. Right? Peter, come. And Pete will come. It's interesting because he'll only come to my voice. Like, everybody else can stand out there and go, Petey, come. Petey, come. But he won't come. He looks at the kids and laughs at them. So it may be like he's an interesting mix of smart and dumb, but he does that. So I say, Petey, come. But here's the thing. You go to the back door to let Petey in, and it can be raining. And you go to the door and you say, Petey, come. And he comes close, and he just wags his tail, and he looks at you like he wants to come, but he doesn't come. And I'm like, you dumb dog, come in. Why won't you come? And he's like, I want to come so bad. I'm a dog. However, dogs talk. I don't really have a dog impression worked out right now. You know what I'm saying? But imagine that in a funny dog voice, right? I want to come. Well, however, a dog talks, right? So he wants to come, and he wags his little tail, and he kind of shakes, and I'm like, Pete, come in. And yesterday, or the day before, it's just raining, and he's getting soaked, and he was barking, and he wants to come in, and I say, Pete, come, and he comes, but he just looks at me, and he won't come up the steps, and he won't come to me. He looks at me like he expects me to hit him. Here's the thing. I've never hit that dumb dog. I wanted to hit the dumb dog. I've not hit the dumb dog, Right? But he looks at me like he expects me to hit him. And I'm like, no, Pete, you're in the rain. Come in. And he's like, I want to so bad. I'm like, no, Pete, come up the steps. He's like, I really want to. It seems like it would be fun. It seems like it's way better in there. You could pet me, and I'll get on your bed when I'm not supposed to and do all kinds of things. It'll be great, you know? And he looks like he wants to, but he doesn't come. And finally, I'm like, Pete, come in. And he won't come. Sometimes I have to go up, grab the dog, and drag him, and he comes to the fire. Why? Because Pete has convinced himself in his head, apparently I'm no dog psychologist, but my thought process is that Pete has convinced himself in my head that when I say come, he really wants to come because he likes us and he knows we pet him and he knows we love him. But someplace in his weird dog brain, 
he's convinced himself that if he comes all the way to us, that we're prepared to hit him and we're going to smack him. It occurs to me that as a dog is to human intellect, right? And I know some people are animal lovers and they're like, dogs are basically just like people, only they have four feet and smell bad or whatever they say, right? So I don't want to burst anyone's bubbles, but, but your dog is not human. Like his powers of intellect, not amazing, right? He's a dog. He can, like, chase a ball. He can run around. He can be furry. He can be a companion. But in a lot of senses, he is, he is uh, uh, the domestic house dog. It, it, it's, like a, it's like a toy with a beating heart. You know what I mean? Like, you can play with it and you can enjoy it. But you're never going to carry on a conversation with it. Like, no, you're going to carry on a conversation with it, but you don't want to talk about that, right? Don't let, listen, especially if you're single. Don't, don't tell too many people about that, right? Because he doesn't talk back. He doesn't give advice. He doesn't have. It's a dog. You have an intellect that is higher than a dog. And I don't care how, how low your intellect is, right? I can say with surety, smartest dog, you, uh, you have intellect that blows away the dog's intellect, right? And so my point is, somehow, in the dog's brain, whatever's going on, she's afraid to come. That's a good, 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 if incomplete uh, allegory or comparison to, to uh, or, or metaphor for what happens when God calls us. Because I feel like a lot of us in our Christian life, we hear God say, come, and we want to rush in, but we get close enough, and then we begin to cower as though we expect God to hit us, right? As if we expect God to, to smite us. As if the God is sitting in heaven going, listen, did you see what Dave Drake did yesterday? Here's the thing, right? God's talking amongst himself, right? Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. They have community. They're, they're in conversation. They're like, listen, here's the thing. Dave Drake, did you see him yesterday? Let's call him over. Get him close. And as soon as he gets here, we'll pop him, right? And so, like, like, like the living God's not like, Dave, come a little closer. Come on, just a little closer, Dave. Come here. Come here. And then, boom, right? That's not the God of the universe. One of my, one of my favorite songs is by this dude, old school dude named Charlie Peacock, and he was talking about grace, and, and, and one of the lines says, he says, so this is what it's like to be forgiven. This is what it's like to be living in a way that you don't have to fear being zapped by God because you don't measure up. After all, that's the point, Right? What I want you to understand is that we do not live in, in a space, you do not occupy a reality where your expectation, if you know the God of the universe, should be that if you don't measure up, that he is looking to zap you. No, see, his glory is honored. His glory is magnified. His name is made great in this, in that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of whom you, I, and everybody else here is chief. And his greatness is not in that he called a bunch of pretty good people and put together the uh, 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 okay team. His greatness is in this. He called us sinners, undeserving, and makes us into his people for his own name, his own praise, and his own glory. And the glory of Isaiah 55 come is prophesied in 53, comes true 2,000 years ago, that when Jesus walks the planet, when Jesus goes to the cross, he is nailed to the cross. When his hands are nailed there, so are your sins. So is your sinfulness. So is your indebtedness. So is your punishment. So is the wrath of the living God poured out on him at the cross so that when he dies and he goes into the grave, he dies and goes into the grave for three days. Three days later, he walks out, but your sin never does. It's been forgiven. And if we think that we cannot come to God because we're too sinful, you are trying to claim the glory of God. What you are claiming is that your sin's too amazing, your sin's too powerful, your sin's too much for God to save. And the glory of his name is in this, is that he came to save Sinners. So, 
when he says come, we don't have to cower like a dumb dog at the back door. We get to run to him like children. Right? This is the beauty of, of, of children, young, young children, especially early, is that I know I said a couple weeks ago, children are sinful from birth, right? But they'll run to you, right? They don't have, like, that, that sense early. Like, they run to you as a child. When a child scrapes his knee, even if that child's been doing wrong, when he scraped his knee, he sprints to his parents, right? As they get older, they, they start to pick up. That thing like, no, I did something bad. I can't go tell my parents how I did it. But when they're tiny, they, even if they hurt themselves doing wrong, they sprint to their parents. See, that's what he means when he says come. He says it like, like a parent. He says it in, in Hebrews like this. Therefore, let us boldly approach the throne of grace. We get to go to God. So I'll continue then. Come to the waters. What are the waters? See, the waters are needed for existence. You might not know this. I've talked to, to believers about the fact that sometimes we stay away. But if you don't know Jesus, I want you to understand this. You need him like your body needs water. You can no more go without Jesus and be alive than I can stop drink wa- drinking any liquid and be alive two weeks from now. Right? If we stop taking in liquid, we die. You need the God of the universe, as much as your body needs water. And he says this, And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Here's the thing, so this goes back to that idea. We go, but how could I come to God? I'm too messed up. How could I come to God? I bring nothing. How could I come to God? I have nothing to offer Him. That's the point. You've got no money. Come. You, you've got nothing to offer. Come. God calls you because for the sake of His own name and for the sake of His own glory and to exemplify and lift up His own goodness, He has chosen you. Not based upon what you offer. You have no money. You've got nothing to buy. But He says, come, buy wine. And milk. You need water so that you can live. You need milk so you can grow. We feed babies milk, Right? Because it fortifies them. It gives them vitamins. They grow. Right? Come by water so you can live. Come by milk so you can grow. And then it says this. By wine. Without money and without price. Why do, you, why do you buy wine? You buy wine so that you can have a joyous life. Right? So, uh, the prophet Isaiah, not the most Baptist of prophets. Okay? So, this is going to be harder to understand if you're a more Baptist prophet, okay? So I don't know what word to substitute. I just know why it's there, right? So if you study the scripture, why do they use wine? Because wine made the party. They didn't have a party without the wine. Wine made the frivolity. Wine made the joy. It's a symbol of all of those things. And so he says, come, get water. Why do you need water so you can live? Come, get milk. Why do you need milk so you can grow? Come, get wine. Why do you need wine so you can have joy? That's the idea that in, in God, if you would come to Him, He's going to let you live. He's going to grow you, but He's also going to give to you joy. It's the idea of, a, of the party, uh, of enjoyment, of fulfillment being found in Him. Come. You go, but I, I don't have anything to bring. Exactly. It's the funny word where it says buy. You're like, aha, I've got it. No, it says come buy without anything. Right? So where you show up and find that your bill's been paid, right? Your bill's been paid, and you didn't do anything to earn it. He's got it for you. Then he says this. He's going to talk to a different group. Some of the people go, well, I've got nothing, and I can't come. I can't come because he said, come, buy it with nothing. Then he talks to another group. He says, why do you spend your money on, for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? There's this other group who's like, well, I'm going to put my energy into this. I'm going to put my energy into that. I'll put, do this and it'll fulfill me. And it's that search for fulfillment in anything to make yourself feel whole and to realize that what you are buying does not feed you. It does not make you whole. It's not going to do what your body needs. It is as if you went to the grocery store and purchased plastic 
food and brought it home to your family. Why are you spending that? You spend your whole grocery bill on things that cannot feed you, things that cannot feed your family. There are a lot of us who do that too, right? And sometimes we waver between the two. We go, well, I have nothing to offer God. What could I possibly give me? He says, no, come. And then other times we're like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to fulfill myself. And so we search for our meaning in all kinds of things, right? And you can make your own list, but where you find your meaning. And then at the end of the day, you find it's not enough, right? Because you've purchased stuff that's not bread. It's not going to feed you. It's not going to fill you. Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? In other words, he's going, I've, I put a feast before you. There's water. There's bread. It says elsewhere, there's, there's the full-fatted meat, Right? The, the marrow, the, the, the meat on the bone, there's, there's wine on the table. This, the feast is before you. Why do you keep laboring as if you were to buy your way in when you never could? Why, why do you do that? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Right? So my mom uh, made for me uh, a chocolate chip pie. Uh, chocolate chip pies are, are amazing. And I had this chocolate chip pie, and I keep trying to share it with my family, but no one's wanted to share the chocolate chip pie with my family because they keep saying, it's, it's too sweet. It's just too rich. And I'm like, that, that sentence makes no sense to me. Right? It's as if you said, I don't want any of that. It tastes way too good. No, no, sorry. That's way too delicious. The flavors are too amazing. They, they hit my, the, the tip of my tongue too well. The, 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 uh, the, the, the flavor sensors and the, and the joy sensors in my body just can't handle it. It's too... I'm like, what do you mean? It's the most amazing thing. And, um, and speaking of food that does not fill and do not eat, so I, I basically have, have eaten this chocolate chip pie for myself over the last two days. And um, I should mix in some other food with it because... Um, it, it, it's delicious and, and it's rich, but I should, I should be mixing it up, but it's like you got Halloween candy um, and, uh, and chocolate chip pie. It's kind of been the two food groups around my house a couple days, but here's the thing. When I, when I hear rich food, I'm going, no, that's, that's delicious food, but it's not just the pies because really what would make this perfect is, is if I had a giant uh, steak or a prime rib. Um, and then I could eat my chocolate pot chip pie as a side dish, right? Because that'd be delicious. And the point, um, the point being made, and as always, right? Contextualize that for yourself. That's what I, I find delicious. Like if you find something else delicious, you make that whatever you want. But I, the point here is this: is that there's extravagance in what we get when we come. He says, eat. What is good and delight yourself in rich food. The idea is when we come to the God of the universe, there is extravagance, which is an unusual word spiritually for those of us who have grown up religiously or ethnically in Grand Rapids, right? So some of you understand that, some of you don't, but a lot of us are, are from Dutch backgrounds. Right? And, right, I'm like, bless the Dutch. They're making my kids super tall. Right? And I'm like, my kid's going to the NBA because Dutch. Right? Probably not, but we'll do, we'll do something. Bless, but the Grand Rapids is founded and built on this idea of the Dutch Calvinist work ethic. Right? And the idea of the Dutch Calvinist work ethic, work ethic which is largely positive, but if you mix that with a few other things in Grand Rapids, so if you grow up with the Dutch Calvinist work ethic and you grow up having lived through the Depression and then you live in Grand Rapids and you're Christian, the word extravagance is a very unusual word for you, right? Because we can serve, right? We can serve in Grand Rapids and conserving is the positive word in Grand Rapids. So, you all know these, these stories, right? Uh, in, in my grandmother's generation, I have, I have Dutch uh, heritage. But we were not raised in, um, 
as culturally Dutch. Uh, my wife uh, has more Dutch blood in her um, and was raised with certain cultural, um, certain cultural Dutch things, right? And so uh, there's a difference in, in how we were raised. So my mom, my mom actually was raised in, in poverty, right? She grew up in, in a very strong poverty. And when you grow up in poverty, one of the things you learn is different ways to express love. One of the most common ways to expect, express love when you grow up in poverty is through food. I was reading um, a, a book by Ruby Payne who was explaining how people in poverty express different things. I'm reading and going, oh my goodness, that's me, that's me, that's me. I'm going, why is this? I was not raised no, but my mom's heritage is, is from that. And I would think a lot of what we got is actually positive from that. But one of the things you do then is you express love through food. So in my, in my background, it is common. My dad gets up at, at like 3.15, goes to work at, at 3.30. He would come home like 2.30 or whenever. But by the time he was coming home at 2.30, he would come in and give my mom a kiss. But my mom would already be preparing dinner at 2.30, right? And so we would begin to prepare dinner and get it ready to be put on, on the table uh, when we got together as a family. I'm youngest of five. The family would sit together and we would, we would eat. And so what is common in my family because uh, of, of our background is that we express love through food. My mother's grandest concern was that there would not be enough food for everybody, right? It's, it's a common concern. And you should know because of who we were, we, to be Drake, right, like you guys think that I exist in a vacuum, like you know how I think, it's, it's my culture, right, right, so to be Drake is to associate the word food, the word food means meat, okay, if you say food and you say dinner, you mean meat, right, everything else is, is an accoutrement, it's an accoutrement, it's something, you want that, but meat is what makes the meal. And so, if I do not eat meat for long enough, I'm like, I don't feel like I've eaten any meal in forever. And I could eat all day and eat all kinds of stuff, but I won't feel like I've eaten unless I've had, had meat. That's our, that's our culture. And so, my mom would make for us a meal. And so, if we were having pork steak... And uh, I have other family members. You can confirm uh, from this. If we're having pork steak in my family, uh, in a lot of families, they might think, well, these pork steaks are pretty big. If we cut them in half, a half pork steak would be enough for everybody. You, if you have ever said that to yourself, are not a drake. Okay? You're just not. Because the way my mom thinks is, we probably need two of these for every person. And I'm not kidding. Right? We would have two of those for every person. That would be on, on the table. That's me. And then every meal had a potato, right? So when I go to, when I go to uh, Southeast Asia, I'm in the Philippines, and they have rice with every meal. I relate to that uh, uh, by degree because I understand that every meal we had in our home had a, had a potato. We were in the Philippines uh, putting on an American-style uh, American uh, cookout for them, and the, the teenagers for the group were like, what are we going to eat? There's no rice. We're going to be so... They were like, panicked. There's no rice with this meal. How could it be? I get that. Because in a Drake meal, there's meat, and a lot of it, and there's potatoes, Right? And then there's a lot of other stuff. There was vegetables. I've never really concerned myself with those, right? <laughs> They're on the table. They may add color to the table. But beyond that, I've never really got that, right? So sometimes you're different than where you come from. And then there might be other, other stuff. That's what we have. In our house, we drink, uh, or in our family, you, then you drink iced tea round, year-round, uh, unsweetened, as the Lord has made it. Um, <laughs> That's what you have. So, I told that long story to follow it up with this. So, I get married. I've been married a while now. And I'm around my wife's family. And I would hear them say things like, you should try this meal. It only took like two minutes to make and didn't cost anything. And I'm like, what's wrong with those people? <laughs> I seriously said to Olivia, I'm like, 
why does your mom not like anyone? <laughs> like, I couldn't comprehend it because culturally I had learned to associate love with extravagance in, in the meal, right? I remember, honestly, the first meal I ever went to at, uh, um, at my wife's uh, house. The table was set and there was lots of stuff on it. But remember, you don't have a meal if you're a drake, if the meat's not... You can put as much other stuff on a table, and it's just other stuff, right? Because other stuff might as well be the spoons and the plates, because it's not the meal to us. And so I remember going there and, and just getting borderline freaked out, going, what are we going to eat? Uh, she is the oldest of four. They were all there. Her grandmother might have been there. I was there. Her parents were there. It's a lot of people. And I looked, and in the middle of the table, they had a little ham loaf, Right? I'm like, what are we going to eat? There's like, a, there's, like a, there's like a cooked can of Spam in the middle of this table. <laughs> what, what, what's for dinner, right? Really long story to make this point, right? Here, here's what I've, just to, just to circle around, just in case my mother-in-law gets technological and listens on, on the internet. What I learned is that that my family just expresses love in different ways, and her family expresses love in different ways. But it is cultural. It, it is cultural in, in cultural, religious, uh, at least the Baptist side of that, that we were Dutch families that to associate the idea of extravagance with sinfulness. So when you hear extravagance, and you come from that background, and I think I was saying this morning to somebody else that if you're from Grand Rapids, we're all, to a certain extent, uh, influenced by that that um, uh, in, in our church bank. When we hear the word extravagance, you might associate that with sinfulness. And yet, what I read here is, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. The idea is this, is that God in his giving is an extravagant giver. Right? He's extravagant. He's not only extravagant at the table, the table's reflective, right? Like, the table's reflective. This is the example he used to his people, and I used it because he did, but it's not just about food, right? Everything about the gift of the living God is extravagant. It doesn't hold back. It, it's not, uh, we like the word also in Grand Rapids, conservative, right? And I'm always like, what's that word mean, right? Like, we use it, and I know what the word means, but we use it like it always means good, right? But but like, here, here's the thing. Sometimes it does. But Jesus doesn't seem to give love conservatively. God does not seem to give his gifts conservatively. Right? He seems to shower them upon us. And all I'm trying to do here right now, guys, is sort of break up in your minds religious paradigms held so that you can understand this, that there is a God who wants you to come to him so that he can heap upon you and give to you fulfillment that is extravagant. He wants to give to you love liberally. He conserves none of the love that he has. He doesn't hold it back from you. He gives it to you. Incline your and come. Come to me here that you, your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, her love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And the nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Here's the idea. Not only is, is God interested in giving to you his, his liberal, his extravagant, his overwhelming love. Not only is he holding not holding that back from you. He's not holding it back from the nations of the earth. Right? That's where that's going. See, sometimes we're like, well, this is our group. And we have it. Right? Like I told you, like I thought and I grew up and I now say all the time in, in marriage counseling, you're not ready to get married until you can admit that your family is odd. And by that, I mean that all families are in some sense odd or just alternatively, the way that you do things what you call normal is just the way you do things, right? And so sometimes we start to think that our culture is the only culture, and our way is the way, and our people are the people, right? And so for a long time we have thought that America, we're Americans, and we have a corner on whom God's going to love. Well, Israel also thought that they were God's chosen, and they, by the way, have way more claim to that title than America ever has, right? But we're the chosen ones. We're the ones, and God's saying, not only... 
are you chosen, but you were chosen for a purpose so that from you and through the covenant of David and through his descendant, all the nations of the earth may be blessed liberally with no conservation, with extravagant blessings in the Lord God. Come, get it. But understand, anybody can come, get it. Right? When I was little, we sang this song, red and yellow, black and white. All are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. We need to recover the heart of that because I think that's what this is saying. In fact, I know it is. All the nations get to come. Right? We think about our nation. Israel thought about their nation But all the nations get to come. One of the greatest things about traveling is you travel to the other side of the world and you realize that America is not the sole religious expert and arbiter of what Christianity is. In the Philippines, I found a version and a style of Christianity that frankly was theologically deeper and and in worship more vibrant than what I encounter in a lot of our churches. More vibrant than what I encounter here. I found people who were so theologically deep and so connected to Jesus there. But we don't get that because we think here. And so this is just an expansion. Not only do you get to come, but all the people, all the nations, because of the everlasting covenant, David is descended through Jesus. Come. Seek the Lord while he might be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. There's the word again. Abundantly, right? He's not conserving. He's giving abundant pardon. Thank goodness. If God was conserving on his pardon, I am out of luck, right? I don't know what a word that is bigger than abundantly is, but I need that kind of pardon because I'm that kind of sinner, right? And I can confess that to you because I know you. And I can confess that to you because I know humans and we're those kinds of sinners. We need abundant pardon. He's abundantly giving it. And then God says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Thank goodness. Or praise the Lord for a God who is bigger, more extravagant, more amazing, wiser, stronger, more powerful, more inconceivable, more incomparable than anything I could ever say. I need that kind of God. I know my own sinfulness, and yet at the cost of his own son, he has wiped out my sins. But he is wiping out the sins of people all over the planet, and he is establishing his glory so that the whole world will one day worship him. Every knee will bow before him because he is God. Thank goodness for a God who is higher than me. I have proved again and again I'm a bad human, but I'm an awful God. Thank goodness. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. That's good news too, right? Because frankly, sometimes we're not real wise. Sometimes we don't do the right thing. And yet, here's a God who says, I'm going to speak and I'm going to make it so. I'm going to call you. See, he said, come. And that word's not going to return empty, but we're going to come to it. But it shall accomplish that for which that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Let me read that to you again. Um, I feel like trying to explain one of the most beautiful metaphors of the grace and goodness of God with my own words that's a little foolish because God said it, right? So let me just read to you what God said about His grace, His goodness, about what it's like in His, His glory. For you shall go out in joy. You, that's us. And be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And the trees of the field shall clap their hands. I do not know what that looks like in fullness, but I tell you this, I will gladly spend the rest of my days plumbing the depths of what that means till Jesus' own face I see. Because that's powerful. 
Instead of the foreign shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the, the myrtle. It shall make a name for the Lord an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The greatest news I've ever received is this. God, for the sake of his own name and for the sake of his own glory, saw fit to rescue hateful, spiteful, rebellious people who did not love him, did not care for him, and did not seek him. And yet he came to them at the cost of his own son, Isaiah 53, who upon him was the punishment that brought us peace through the, through the, through the giving of his own gifts, Isaiah chapter 54, so that we can get to Isaiah chapter 55. Come, 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 come and eat. When we go in a few minutes into communion, we say this each week, we say, communion is a physical expression of the spiritual reality of the gospel. Right? Never is that more reflective than Isaiah chapter 53 through 55, right? Come and eat, right? When we come and we take the bread and we dip it into, in, into the juice as a symbol of His body and His blood, we come and we eat, we fill ourselves on Jesus and we are filled up. We hunger no more. We thirst no more. We are given joy. We are given peace. We are given all of that. And so, this is the most beautiful thing I can ever speak. And it's just to quote what Jesus has said. To quote what God the Father has said of Jesus, prophesied of Jesus 700 years before he was. 2,000 years, uh, uh, 700 years later, he made it true. He fulfilled that prophecy in Jesus so that 2,000 years later, you could come to communion, dip the body into the blood to say, it's true. It's Jesus that I feast upon. It's Jesus who I come to the table and the meal he set before me. It's rich. It's extravagant. He, is, he, is, he has lavished every good thing on me. That's the good news. It's really good news. And so I loop back to the beginning. I don't know where you are in your personal walk with Jesus. I don't know where you are emotionally. I don't know any of, any of that, right? Like sometimes people tell me, sometimes I don't, but we go through things. But I want all of you to hear this, that the message of Isaiah chapter 55, 2,007 years ago, is every bit as true today. God the Father says because of the work of God the Son, through God the Spirit to you, come, eat, fill yourself up on me. I will be your fulfillment. And then he ends it by saying, you shall go out with joy. I invite you to come. I invite you to come. Don't cower at the door like a dumb dog. Don't cower at the door like a foolish human. You were invited to boldly approach the throne of grace as a child of the living God and to be filled. He has laid the table extravagantly before you. Come and eat. Pray with me.